Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. Greetings, my good people. How are you? What is happening? What is going on? How's everybody doing out there? Hope everybody's well, in great spirits and health. And whether you've come for a small dose or a big portion of your sports news so I can entertain and inform you guys, well, you've come to the right place to listen to it all here on the latest edition of the J Reels Podcast. This is your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. Thank you so much for downloading and getting a chance to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's happening in the world of sports. And for those who've been with me from day one to now, episode 156, I welcome you guys back. It's a Monday, September the 21st in the year of our Lord, 2020. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What to expect here on this podcast is as follows. The good and bad of the baseball playoff scenario and schedule as we're down to the final week of the baseball season. That's right. The sprint will come to a conclusion this coming Sunday. I'll recap everything that's happening in baseball, the AL and NL pennant races, as well as the official purchase of the New York Mets by Steve Cohen. You know I have a lot to say about that, but there are a couple of caveats. You definitely don't want to miss out on that. Also, why the choke label needs to be put on the Los Angeles Clippers in the NBA. We get that, whether being soft or, in this case, choking, the way the Clippers did. Seems to be a, not just a negative connotation, but just a bad example of players, coaches, personnel, etc. How they do not like that label, but this one fits the bill. I'll touch on that later on, as well as how the Lakers and Heat are just two wins away from an unlikely NBA Finals matchup. Although the Celtics are on the comeback after winning Game 3. And the Nuggets had the Lakers right where they want them. Despite the fact of a devastating loss last night in Game 2. We'll touch on the NBA later on. The Stanley Cup Finals are in full effect. Steven Stamkos making his way back to the starting lineup. We'll see if Tampa has enough or could do enough to equal the series as Game 2 is tonight. In Edmonton at the bubble. And obviously we'll put a rest to the 2020 New York Islanders season. And their tough 6 game defeat. At the hands of the Tampa Bay Lightning. In golf we have Bryson DeChambeau winning the US Open. But why his approach to the game seems to be rubbing players on the tour the wrong way. Rory McIlroy. A couple other golfers were not really particularly fond of how Bryson DeChambeau plays. And how he performs. So I'll get into that. College football. The Big Ten is returning. Is the Pac-12 following suit. Lots to shake a stick at here over the course of this podcast. Including my hero in Zero of the Week. But my theme here, to kick us off, today is the final day of summer. Now the leaves will start to turn a little bit, as fall will officially begin tomorrow. So wherever you are here in the Northeast, it's actually been chilly. It's felt like fall. It's been in the 60s, which I know a lot of people are certainly welcoming with open arms as we have experienced a hot summer. But you know me, I'm a summer guy. I want the heat to continue, although it will be in the 80s as we get to the mid part of the week and the end of the week. But I start off with the conclusion of summer being the last day today because football is in the air. 
Football, as we all know, is the paramount sport here in this country. And I know a lot of people were probably wondering why I didn't start off with that last week, considering it was week one. It was a long off season, as we all know. And with the NFL now front and center, even with the NBA and NHL going through their playoffs and MLB about to embark on their postseason, people were wondering, hey, Jay Reels, NFL, why didn't you start there? Well, guess what? I'm going to put the ball on the tee, kick it off in the 35-yard line, and get ready to catch it and run it back because here we go as we got a lot to cover here to start off with the National Football League. And to me, the one thing that I talked about during the NFL preview and even a couple weeks before that were twofold. The first thing, we thought we'd get some sloppy play out of the gate considering there were no preseason games and you didn't get a lot of reps from these teams, no scrimmages. It was just pretty much offense versus defense, not a lot of hitting. And one of the things that we normally seen in the past as far as the first couple of weeks is that we get these games where they're sluggish, not as entertaining. Teams are trying to get their bearings to get some sort of consistency in their play so we could get the product that everybody's looking forward to once we get to about week three, four, five. Well, we haven't seen that. But the other thing, number two, is the injury bug. And it certainly hit the NFL yesterday. Didn't really do so much in week one, which was a sigh of relief because we probably thought with a lot of players not really getting those reps, as I've said, and not used to hitting, getting the game speed that players are normally used to, And here in week two, we got a ton of injuries, especially for the San Francisco 49ers. They've felt the brunt of this big time. And we'll touch on the Niner injuries in a second. But when you go across the league and you look at what took place, not only with San Francisco, but you also look at Green Bay losing Devontae Adams with a hamstring and even Tyrod Taylor for the Los Angeles Chargers literally minutes before the start of the game. We had Justin Herbert and what he did in his debut as an NFL quarterback against the Kansas City Chiefs. Also, Drew Locke is another guy who hurt his shoulder against the Steelers yesterday where the Broncos pretty much hung in there against the Steelers team. And you know I'm going to dissect that in a little while. But the Niners certainly felt the effect of all these injuries, whether you're Jimmy G with a high ankle sprain or Nick Bosa, who I don't want to say is the heart and soul of that defense right now. But we all know number two pick overall last year. Looks like he's going to be out with an ACL, which is just a crushing blow for a team that's looking to get back to a Super Bowl. We know about Richard Sherman having to be put on IR. You also had Raheem Mostert, Solomon Thomas. So many guys have dropped like flies here in that game against the Jets across the way at MetLife Stadium to the point where a lot of the Niner players are very concerned about having to come back Next week to play the Giants in that same building on that turf, knowing that they suffered all these injuries and then they're pretty much looking at it as what's going to happen next. And you wonder if there's going to be anything done between now and then. What are you going to do? Resod the whole stadium? You're going to put it in a whole new turf just for the 49ers to come back one last time? I know it's a little bit of a scheduling quirk, but that was something I'm sure that the NFL offices did prior to knowing that They wanted to get these games out of the way in the world of coronavirus that we live in instead of having them to fly in last week or just a couple days ago and then come back later in the year to play the Giants to fly back east 3,000 miles. Well, now you have this scenario where I bet you're going to hear from 
the front office, even Kyle Shanahan, to wonder what's going to happen when this team has to fly back 3,000 miles to play in that stadium again, knowing that they pretty much left body parts out in the field there for the San Francisco 49ers. So that's something to keep in mind throughout the course of the week. And then also, Saquon Barkley tearing an ACL. Speaking of the Giants, you're not going to see him play this week, and that's the word that's feared from the Giant camp is that Saquon Barkley is going to be out for the rest of the year with an ACL. So the NFL was able to get through week one unscathed, and now week two, just a rash of injuries, and you only wonder what's going to happen here over the course of the coming weeks. And not that we were rooting for injuries or wanting to have these injuries take place, but it was pretty much expected to think that after week one, as much as you could wipe your brow and say, all right, well, we made it out of that week, okay. And now week two was just decimated with some key players, key teams facing some brutal season-ending injuries. And now we're going to have to keep an eye on what's going to not only take place here next week at the Meadowlands, but just throughout the course of the league. And as we go through it, my winners and losers, as I like to talk about, and I'll go through these some of these games from yesterday. I'm not going to go through every game, people, but but as I'm going to do week in and week out, as I go through the league with a fine-tooth comb, who were the biggest winners and losers of the week before I go through some of these games and scenarios and things of that nature. So I thought the winners of yesterday, I got to look at the Chiefs, and I know a lot of people could say, oh, please, Jay Reels, you know, the Chiefs are going to win probably 12, 13 games. Chances are they're going to, at least play in an AFC championship, if not go back to a Super Bowl. But when you look at what Harrison Bucker did and his heroics, not only getting the field goal to push the game into overtime, but then winning the game in overtime with a 58-yard field goal, which earlier in the game matched his career high with a 58-yard field goal. And right now you'd have to say that he is the best kicker in the league considering how clutch he was in the game yesterday. And as I mentioned just a couple of minutes ago, the NFL debut of a one Justin Herbert, the Oregon quarterback, number one pick, six pick overall, who had a fine performance. And I'm sure that the Chiefs wasn't prepared to go up against the rookie. They obviously had no game film on him. He was 22 for 33, threw for over 300 yards, rushed for a touchdown, threw a touchdown, as good as a debut as you could possibly have. But with Butker's heroics and what he was able to do to pull out that game, I mean, two field goals for 58 yards. I mean, that's all you need to know as far as the Chiefs having that championship medal and having the personnel to win any type of game, no matter what conditions it may be, whether it's indoors at SoFi Stadium with no fans or even in Kansas City in the outdoors. I'm sure you're going to see him hit some big field goals later on in the year. But to me, they were a big winner, and Bucker in particular, because for him to have that type of performance yesterday, in which they really needed it, just goes to show you how much of a complete team that they have, that it's not just Patrick Mahomes, and rightfully so, everybody's going to look at the quarterback as being the guy and what he's done, not only last year winning a Super Bowl, but getting his team off to a great start. But as we all know, it takes all 53 men, and Bucker was your hero there yesterday, and to me, the Chiefs were a big winner in that regard. My second team, I'm going to pick the Rams, only because they had to come east, to play the Eagles, the Eagles were a desperate team considering they lost to the Washingtonians the week before down in the nation's capital. But for them to go into Lincoln Financial Field, to put up 37 points, to pretty much be in control of that game, to go up in a division where they're now 2-0, and which matches the Seattle Seahawks in a very competitive 
NFC West as well as the Arizona Cardinals. Can't forget those guys. So for them to keep pace with those two teams certainly bodes well for this Ram team as they're looking to have a bounce back season after having maybe a little bit of a Super Bowl hangover last year. So to me, kudos to them. They're my second winner of the week. And then my third team, it was a little bit of a toss-up between Buffalo and Tennessee, but I picked Buffalo for this reason. Josh Allen is starting to grow up right in front of our eyes. I understand it was the Dolphins, and then last week was the Jets. But for him to throw for 417 yards, they were actually down 20-17 to in the fourth quarter to come up with some big plays. We know he's also very good running with the football as well. But you got to wonder if Josh Allen is starting to make that next step. Not to say he's a top 10 quarterback. Not to say that he's going to be one of the elite guys in the league for years to come. That still remains to be seen. But with a team that's primarily based or their identity is based on their defense. And to have a guy that we know Allen has a great arm but it can be erratic and very inaccurate at times. For him to put up two weeks where he threw for over 300 last week and now over 400 this week. You got to wonder if Josh Allen is ready to take that next step for not only just his team, but also for the rest of the league to put on notice that the Buffalo Bills could be a force to be reckoned with. So that's, to me, a 3A to my 3B with the Tennessee Titans after winning a Monday night game in Denver behind Steven Gostowski. Yes, that guy, the former Patriot kicker, wins it on a Monday night in Denver. They had their home opener yesterday against the Jacksonville Jaguars coming off a week one win against Indianapolis. And they fought tooth and nail and came back and actually probably should have won the game knowing that they had a missed extra point, which would have sealed the deal. But because at 30-17, to they get a touchdown, they missed that extra point to make it 30-23 and they were able to tie the game. But Tennessee then took over and then their defense on the final drive, we thought maybe a little Minshew magic was going to come back and affect the quarterback of the Jaguars, Gardner Minshew. Looked like he was going to pull his team out of the fire and put the Jaguars with a 2-0 record. That wasn't to be the case. The Titans now 2-0 in the AFC South as they're in first place. So I thought they were a 3B winner to go along with the Buffalo Bills as we highlight the teams that really went above and beyond here in this week too. And now to get to the losers. And this should be 1, 2, and 3. But if you're an Atlanta Falcon fan... And you look back over the last few years, and I'm not even going to go back to the Super Bowl because that's where it all started. What happened there yesterday was just an abomination. There is no excuse for them to lose that game. The Cowboys had no business winning that game. And there was some poor coaching on both sides of the coin. The Falcons jumped off to a 20 nothing lead and actually were about to kick an extra point at 26-7. Instead, Dan Quinn decides to go for two, does not make the two-point conversion, so it's a 26-7 lead. You're thinking, all right, no big deal. They're up still three scores. Away we go. As the game moves along, at 39-24, the Cowboys get a touchdown. For whatever the reason, Mike McCarthy decides to go for two. They were unable to convert, which was a terrible move because why would you think about going for two At 39-30, where if you just get the extra point, now you're down by one score, and then you try for the two later on. Do these coaches know never to chase points whether you're ahead, like Dan Quinn, or behind, like Mike McCarthy? Now, let's go back to Quinn for a second. At 26-7, 
if you would have kicked the extra point, guess what? With the way the game played out, and of course we're not going to know at that point of the game that it's going to work out that way, but this is why you don't chase points when you're ahead, especially at that part of the game. Because when you look at that, the final score, and it was 40-39, to 39, if you would have kicked the extra point, the game would have been tied. And again, people could say, well, Jay Reels, you can't look at the game that way. Well, you absolutely can, because why are you chasing points when you're already 19 points ahead? So at 27-7, being 20 points ahead, you're not thinking about the Cowboys scoring 21 unanswered to take the lead at 28-27. You can't think of the game that way. You just have to continue to play it as it is, and then maybe if the Cowboys do make a comeback, and if by some stretch you're up 12 later in the game, and you know you want to go for two just to make it to where if the Cowboys do come back, that they, if they do get the equalizer, then the game will be tied at that point. That's fine. But not at that stage of the game if you're Dan Quinn. That's number one. And as far as McCarthy's concerned, that was inexcusable for him to go for two there. And he's showing that he's become Jason Garrett 2.0 here. Because when you look at the game last week against the Rams, him on a fourth and three when he could, could have kicked a field goal there with 11 minutes to go in the fourth quarter, he didn't do that. And then yesterday at 39-30, he goes for two just so he could be one touchdown behind and an extra point. Why, why would you do that? Again, get the extra point. You're down by eight. You get a touchdown. Then you go for the two-point conversion at that time. And as it was, as much as I killed McCarthy on that, here come the Cowboys where they get a touchdown. They have to kick the extra point because they're not going to go for two. So now it's 39-37. Onside kick. And then what happens? The Falcons just look at the ball as it's squirting towards the 10-yard mark. Because remember, when you kick off the ball, it has to go at least 10 yards before the ball could be recovered. But none of the players from the Falcons even thought to attempt as it's slowly inching toward that 10-yard mark for them to even dive on the ball. Instead, you had a Cowboy player dive on it. They received the onside kick, which right now, it's the most low percentage play in football. And I wish they could kind of bring it back to the point where you could get the old style onside kick because remember, it's all for the safety now. They're not going to put all those players on one side of the field as you've seen over the last couple of years. So yesterday was just a freak occurrence. And not only that, but how the ball was kicked. It wasn't kicked off a tee. It was actually just booted to the point where the ball was spinning. And then for the last few seconds, it just turned to that 10-yard mark. And then next thing you know, the Cowboy player pounces on it. They get the ball. What happens? They end up lining up for a field goal, kick the field goal. Greg Zerline, who I didn't even know was on the Cowboys, to tell you the truth, gets the game-winning field goal, 40-39. to I understand it's a great Cowboy comeback, unbelievable, but that falls at the feet of Dan Quinn. Not only for having to go for two early on in the game, but then just the atrocity of that onside kick and how his recovery team just didn't even think to go for the ball. Dan Quinn, he shouldn't have made it to the airport. And if you're Arthur Blank, you're going to really have to think long and hard to fire this guy because the mojo around this team ever since that Super Bowl loss has hung over this team like a dark cloud. And if you're Dan Quinn, I'm sure he's got to be expecting that the axe is starting to grind right now. Because there is no way that you could lose that game the way they did. And not only that, but also how they were not able to just recover that on, I just, how does that happen? You know, it wasn't as if it bounced off a player and then it just pinballed throughout a few players and then a Cowboy player retrieved it. All right, if that was the case, eh, those are the breaks. 
But if you go back and look at the tape and see how they recovered that onside kick the Cowboys did, how does that happen? And that's the coaching. Right, the special teams coach could be blamed. They could fire the special teams coach right now. Is that going to make a difference? Absolutely not. It all starts with the head coach. And what more can you say? The Falcons have been snake bit ever since that Super Bowl loss to the Patriots. So that's loser number one. Loser number two, to my good buddies, Head style and kept the Viking fan. The Minnesota Vikings have gotten off to as bad as a start as you could possibly have. We know about last week the Green Bay. Okay, you're going to lose at home. Aaron Rodgers, 364 yards, four touchdowns. Okay, that's one thing. But for them to not show up in Indianapolis, and they're coming off a bad loss. I get that. And in their building, and they actually had some fans there. But for the Vikings to lay the egg that they did, it was just inexcusable. We were not in the game at all. I understand they gave up a million field goals. And at the same time, Kirk Cousins threw three interceptions. I get two of them were long passes. But for the Vikings, who had a lot of big things and I'm sure had some big plans to do some big things, especially in the NFC North, where it was pretty much going to be between them and Green Bay, right now are two games behind not just the Packers, but also the Chicago Bears. So the Vikings are loser number two. For this week. And the third one, and this is easy pickings, but I, I have to go there with this. Speaking of coaches that need to go, Adam Gaze and the New York Jets, when is that divorce going to happen? All you need to know about the Jets, and not that they were to beat the Niners or be in a close game or anything like that, considering their players were dropping like flies yesterday, as I said at the top. But for the Jets to give up a third and 31. Okay, third and 31 on a draw play to Jarek McKinnon for 55 yards. That's all you need to know about the Jets. That is a microcosm. If anything, that could be a microcosm for the year 2020. Think about that. So Adam Gaze, we understand that the Jet fan is sick and tired of him. I'm sure the press is destroying him in the process. And me, I'm not a Jet fan. I care neither here or there. But at the same time, you have to be disgusted with what's going on there. At least the Giants, they've been playing hard. They've been in some close games. I understand the Monday night game against the Steelers may not be as close, but they've fought. They've played hard. The Jets, it's almost as if you see no effort. And I'm not going to pin this all on Sam Darnold either because a lot of people think that, hey, if the Jets have the worst record in the league, let's draft Trevor Lawrence. And I'm not trying to say Sam Darnold's going to turn it around in a heartbeat. But to me, I think this is more the coach than it is the player. And I think Donald would definitely would love to open up the windows and get some fresh air, maybe from a new coaching staff, because Gaze is not the answer. I'm sorry. This mastermind, wonderkind, the whole Peyton Manning endorsed him for the jet job, that rumor, and what he did in Denver as an offensive assistant, and in Chicago, and even in Miami, I get with Matt Moore, they made the playoffs that one year in his first year coaching down there for the Dolphins. But Gaze is just a disaster. So the Jets, they fall on the map there as loser number three, in my eyes. And when you look throughout the league, I know some of the big games yesterday were in the afternoon and in the evening when the Seattle Seahawks behind Russell Wilson, and I'm not going to go crazy, I'm sure everybody on the first takes and the undisputeds of the world are going to say, whoa, Russell Wilson, 10 touchdowns and one interception, he's already the MVP of the league. Right, you could say that. But it's two weeks into the season. Can we pipe down a little bit with that? And that's the one thing I can't stand about those type of programs because 
are we really going to anoint an MVP when we're not even out of September and it's not, we're still officially into summer? Uh, come on, give it a break. But with Russell Wilson and his start, and even with the way the Patriots played, and they fought hard, and it was down to the final play where Cam Newton was stopped there on the first and goal, and the Seahawks now 2-0, and keeping pace with, as I said earlier, the Rams and the Cardinals in a very competitive NFC West. That was the highlight game of the day, and probably the best game of the day, because when you look at some of the other games, whether it's the Ravens going down to Houston and manhandling the Texans the way they did, and Lamar Jackson had another solid game, 33 points. They also got a defensive turnover, a defensive touchdown, which they seem to do every other game, the Baltimore Ravens. And we're looking at an AFC North, which looks like it's going to be tooth and nail all year long between them and the Steelers. The Buffalo Bills, I mentioned the comeback there against the Dolphins. That was another, I don't want to say big surprise, but knowing that the Dolphins had a lead there, and you wonder what's going to happen here with Tua Tagovailoa. Is the Tua watch now going to be in full effect? Knowing that Justin Herbert had his debut yesterday. And even though Tyrod Taylor, and from what Coach Anthony Lynn of the Chargers said, that once he's healthy, he's coming back in there. Which honestly makes no sense because Tyrod Taylor is not the future of this organization or this team for that matter. And we understand that he wants to get victories. He feels as if Taylor's going to be his best shot to keep his job considering that he's in year four. They didn't make it to the playoffs last year. If Herbert is going to be the starter, chances are he may not make it to the postseason this year. And you would also have to think that if that's not going to be the case, he may get another year in LA. But if not, he could fall victim to the axe and lose his job. So that's why he's going to anoint Taylor as his starter when healthy. But if you're the Dolphins, you wonder if it's two a time here in the coming weeks. Not to say Fitzpatrick has played awful, but we all know that once you get that quarterback, your franchise quarterback drafted in one of those top four, five, six spots, it's just a matter of time before they are under center, manning not only the team, but also the franchise to hopefully bigger and better heights. And other games yesterday, I mean, you didn't really have a lot of sexy games. Tampa got their first victory under Tom Brady against Carolina, big whoop. Arizona beating the Washingtonians to become 2-0. Green Bay, we're doing Green Bay things against the Detroit Lions. Uh, other than that, there really isn't a lot to sink your teeth into in the week two. I know Trubisky now 2-0 as the Bears are tied with the Packers in the NFC North. Are you going to go crazy about Cleveland's victory on Thursday night over Cincinnati despite Joe Burrow throwing for over 300 yards and 61 passes, which is ridiculous. Zach Taylor, the coach of the Bengals, looking to get his future quarterback on the IR. And I'm not going to go crazy with what Baker Mayfield... I mean, he had a good game. It wasn't anything crazy. To me, that was all Nick Chubb and their running attack with him and Kareem Hunt. But that was a game they had to have. And I'm tired of seeing Baker Mayfield as it is in all these progressive commercials and Hulu. I mean, jeez. But anyway, as we now look ahead to week three... As a matter of fact, even before we get to that, I'll touch on the Steelers real quick. The Steelers, they had the Monday night game... Last week, which you didn't get my take on, Ben was rusty from the start. You saw that, but he started to pick up momentum throughout the rest of the game and had a very good game, as well as their defense. Although the Giants made it interesting late, but they held on to win 26-16. And then we look at yesterday's game, where the Steelers again got off to 
a relatively slow start, but they were able to make some plays. And Roethlisberger, who, if he plays like this, the Steelers are going to be fine. We understand there's going to be some moments with Ben because of his age. And although his arm looks good and some of his passes had some zip there, but the interception that he had coming out of the halftime to Justin Simmons, I don't know, that looked like it was a prayer that he threw up. So maybe that wasn't the best decision by Ben in that case. And you also, let me get to one other thing too before I even get to a little bit more of the game. I understand everybody's looking at their defense as being the next great defense in this league. They are nowhere near that right now. Are they a good defense? Yes. Are they a top five defense? I think they can be. But they let Denver come back in the game with a guy named Jeff Driscoll. He was a backup quarterback for the Bengals the last couple of years. And the Steeler defense, although they bailed him out yesterday, they were able to get that fourth and two where Terrell Edmonds off the edge got the sack. And then they iced the game there with the long James Conner run before they took a knee and got out of there. But to me, the Steeler team, again, it's all going to be on Ben. And we understand that because of the age and there's going to be some times where you're going to wonder whether or not he's going to be healthy throughout the course of a 16-game schedule. So we'll see throughout the course of the season how this defense will progress. Can they rush the quarterback? Absolutely. Their pass rush is lethal right now. And that's a good thing. And we understand Pittsburgh teams have been like that for decades. And they have the personnel to be a great defense. But we also know that they need to get big stops and big moments. And there are times where they leave the game hanging in the balance a little bit. At 26-14, after they got the safety, you figured, all right, they're going to put them away. But the Broncos came down the field and scored a touchdown. I don't know if they got a little soft there. I don't know if they felt as if, all right, the game's in the bag. Got the pedal off the metal there a little bit. But the Steelers, they can be a great defense. But right now, I don't think they're anywhere close to it. But they're certainly a very good defense. And between that and Ben Roethlisberger's health, as I said before, and I'll say it again, that's going to be the key to this Steelers season. And also, Mike Tomlin with these challenges, he just drives you crazy. I get that he probably had to challenge that play late in the game. This was right before the stop that I mentioned with Terrell Edmonds sacking Jeff Driscoll. But there was a play where Driscoll threw a ball to the sideline where the tight end, Noah Font, caught the ball and juggled it and then got possession, tiptoed it. It looked like he may have stepped out of bounds, but upon further review, he did not, and he threw a challenge flag. And I understand he's probably looking at it and saying, hey, what the hell, you never know, but they're not going to turn that over. I mean, when you watch that replay, even before he threw the challenge flag, it's like, oh, no, don't throw the challenge flag because he loses 99.9% of these challenges. And for a guy who's been in the league as long as he has been, And obviously one of the top coaches, despite the fact that you could question some of the things that he's done over the years, that he always loses these challenges. So hopefully at some point throughout the course of the season, he'll know when to not dump the laundry on the field and just hold it there to know that maybe this isn't the best point to throw the flag. And it's not about the timeouts. And I'm sure it was a gamble. He figured that, hey, you never know. But uh -uh. from the naked eye, you could see that Fon had both feet in. But the Steelers win, 2-0 start for them, Ravens 2-0. As I said before, it looks like they're going to be fighting tooth and nail for the AFC North supremacy. And when we look at the Week 3 schedule, actually you have some really good games. Week 3 is highlighted by a Monday night game between Kansas City and Baltimore. Does it get any better than that? I don't think so. You would probably like to see this game maybe Week 8, Week 9, Week 10 later on in the year. 
But this is a good litmus test for both teams. As the Chiefs got out of LA with a victory there, thanks to their kicker, as I mentioned earlier. And then the Ravens off to a flying start with two convincing victories. And now we'll get to see them front and center next Monday night in Baltimore to see which team will go 3-0 to start off their year. So that is the highlight game of the week. The Thursday night game, you might as well just uh, go to bed early, Miami and Jacksonville. But the games of note next week, you have the Rams coming back east again, but this time to play the Buffalo Bills. That should be a very good game. You also have Vegas. We'll see what they do tonight against the Saints. Their first game in Vegas and in that new building, Allegiant Stadium. They're going to play New England, who could have came away with a 2-0 record, but as we know, did not get the touchdown there to ice the game in those final seconds. You also have your 4 o'clock game, Dallas and Seattle, which makes it a little bit more sexier knowing that the Cowboys were able to steal one from the Falcons as they go to the Pacific Northwest to play the 2-0 Seahawks. Your Sunday night game is Green Bay at New Orleans. Uh, Other than that, you don't really have much. Houston at Pittsburgh, Tennessee, Minnesota, Washington at Cleveland, Chicago, Atlanta. Uh, You don't really have a lot of sexy games, but you do have at least a few games you can look at where week two, you pretty much didn't have anything. So that's what we have there, week three in the NFL. Oh, and lastly, one other injury of note was Christian McCaffrey, who left the game yesterday against the Buccaneers. Who knows what his status is going to be, but that's another player that, if the NFL loses, is one of the faces of the league, would be a huge loss to a Carolina team that's not expected to do anything this year, but without their best player, it'll certainly go from possibly a five-win team to maybe a two- or three-win team, so... We'll keep our eyes on the health of a one Christian McCaffrey as well. All right, now I'm going to turn my attention to the winter sports, which are still playing games, and that would be the NBA and NHL as they're now getting closer to crowning a champion. The NHL I'll get to a little bit later as we're now into the Stanley Cup Finals, the final round between Dallas and Tampa. But the NBA is now front and center. And before I even get to Boston, Miami, and Denver and the LA Lakers, I have to talk about the Clippers and as much as I can break down the game and how everything just unfolded for them from games five through seven, I want to talk about the choke label. And the reason why I want to talk about that is because between that and the word soft, those are two words that the athlete, the coach, the organization do not like to swallow as they look at that as being harsh or it's an indictment on their team, players, etc., But you have to call it like you see it. And as much as we want to look at Denver and their achievement, and I could start there because it was an achievement. For them to win back-to-back series down three games to one against Utah and now the Clippers was historic. We've never seen that before in the history of the league. But that comes with a little bit of an asterisk only because if game five was to be played in LA, if this wasn't a coronavirus world, Would the Nuggets have won a game five and then a game six in their building to win a game seven in LA again? Chances are probably not. And they could have done it in the first series because remember, they had the home court against the Utah Jazz. So if they were down 3-1 in that series, maybe, we'll never know, but they probably would have won and come back from a 3-1 series deficit because of the home court advantage. But could they have done it twice in a row knowing that they had to do it on the road? That's just something to think about, but it's in the record books. They were down 3-1, and they won those series, and kudos to them. Nikola Jokic, 
Jamal Murray, Mike Malone, the coach, etc. But back to the Clippers. And if you're the 40 Clipper fans, as I mentioned last week, you have to be sick to your stomach. You have to look at this as what in the hell happened when you felt as if this team was finally going to make it, not even just to an NBA final, but to a conference final. I think about this, to not make it to a conference final in 50 years as being in an organization, whether you're in Buffalo, San Diego, or Los Angeles, it's almost unfathomable. Because yes, making it to a final, a World Series, an NBA, right, we all know it's tough. But teams have made it to a conference final. Even before this year, the Denver Nuggets made it to a conference final in 2009 with Carmelo Anthony. And the Nuggets haven't made many conference finals throughout their history as far as being an NBA team. Remember, they were in the old ABA back in the 70s. But when the Clippers had everything primed and ready to go meet the LA Lakers, to have that Battle of LA, even though it was going to be in Orlando, it was all primed and ready after Game 4 for them to spit the bit the way they did and blowing those double-digit leads and blowing a an 8-point lead early in that game, 7 And the way Kawhi Leonard played, the way Paul George played, Doc Rivers coached, no urgency, none of it. Sorry, people, they gagged, they choked, and that label's going to be on them until they even get to a conference final, let alone an NBA final. What they did last week was beyond comprehensible. And... I understand people want to look at Kawhi Leonard's legacy now as being a little tarnished because of this. Is it on his basketball resume? It is. But this doesn't mean that there's a black mark on Kawhi Leonard's legacy. I mean, that's just a joke. Considering the guy's won two titles, he's won two finals MVPs. We know what he did last year in Toronto. This is just a speed bump in the career of Kawhi Leonard. Yes, yeah, is it on his record? Of course it is. But And he didn't play well in the game. And right, he is part of this team that choked. But for this to be some sort of legacy game a la Stephen A. Smith, you got to be kidding. That's just flat out wrong. But when you look at a guy like Paul George, who's never won anything in his life, and he's missing layups, turning the ball over, shots that are denting the side of the backboard, hitting, trying to make a three when it's deflecting off the side of the backboard, I, that is just... That is the epitome of a choke job. And we talk about Doc Rivers. He's blown another 3-1 series lead as he's done in Orlando, as he's done now here. Just, and here's a guy that, and I love Doc. I got nothing against him. Obviously, he coached my team and won a championship in 2008. But at the same time, you got to wonder what had happened here with this team that they just weren't able to put it together. And I don't want to hear that, oh, well, Montrezl Harrell was out because of death of his grandmother and Lou Williams with the whole... Magic City thing in Atlanta. Well, they were up 3-1. All they had to do was just put them away and they had three chances to do so. Two in the previous two games in five and six where they had double-digit leads. And I know I've been on record as saying double-digit leads in the NBA, they could dissipate in a heartbeat. Understandably so, but come on. When you have two competent defensive players in Kawhi Leonard and also Paul George that for those guys to go out to sea in those games and then to blow a game seven, there's zero excuse. None. So that's why, to me, and you got to call it like you see it, people. I understand it may be touchy. I understand that the players may look at it, ah, you don't know, you haven't played a game, you haven't done this. You haven't. doesn't matter. 
the eye test. You see what you see. They gagged. They spit it up. So they can look at me and say, you never played professional sports in your life. Ah, what do you know? Listen, I've been watching sports forever. And we know a choke job when we see one. We just talked about it before with the Atlanta Falcons in the Super Bowl. You mean to tell me that, yes, New England, great comeback, so on and so forth. But you have a 28-3 lead with two minutes to go in the third quarter. You got to take that game home. Just like if you have a 19-point lead in the second half, you got to take that game home. Come on. This isn't some eighth seed that was hanging by a thread and they just so happened to get out to a big lead and then they spit it up. You could say, all right, well, they didn't have the personnel or they're a young team. No, sorry. No passes here, my guys and gals. So that's what I got to say about the Clippers. I just felt as if so many people were, I'm not trying to say that they were getting them off the hook and didn't want to label them as chokers and didn't want, no, 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 sorry. That doesn't fly here. And you know me, people, I got to call as I see it. And that's just being fair and it's just being honest. That's all there is to it. So for those who don't want to touch that subject because it's just, oh, we don't know. So, <laughs> not here. Now, as far as the current series that are going, we'll go with Denver and the Lakers before we get to Boston-Miami. Now, as expected, the Nuggets were going to lose game one. Lakers blitzed them out of the building. What was it, 126-114? All right. Just like the previous round where they lost by 23 in game one to the Clippers. So the Nuggets did the same. And all right, chalk it up. We'll come back next time. Now, last night, you had a game two where it was tooth and nail. Denver was pretty much trailing throughout the whole game. In fact, they were down 14 in the third quarter. And I believe with about three minutes left, they were down eight. Until Nikola Jokic then turned it on scoring 11 points in the final 242 for them to even take a one-point lead, 103-102. Another great comeback. Would have been an unbelievable setup for a game three. But then Anthony Davis drains a three, and from pretty deep too. And even Jokic in the post game, he even said that for whatever reason, once he let go of the ball without even having to look at the basket, he just had a feeling it was going to go in. And sure enough, it went in. Huge three-pointer, just a dagger. Crushing loss, considering that they came all the way back in the second half and then took the lead there late thanks to the heroics of Jokic, but it wasn't enough. Lakers are up 2-0, but then the Nuggets have them where they want them because now they're down in the series, and even though they even the previous series with Utah and also the Clippers, but now they're going to face an insurmountable hole because now they're going to have to beat the Lakers 4 out of 5. And people could say, well, hey, if they were down 3-1, they're going to have to beat them three straight. But we all know that the Lakers are a different breed than the Clippers. And I hope that the Nuggets will come back. They've shown a lot of resiliency, as we've seen in this postseason. There's a lot of togetherness on that team based on what you saw there, especially after Game 7. But you wonder, is this one going to be not only just tough to swallow, but just tough to come back from? Because now the Lakers, I'm sure they're going to smell that blood in the water and think, well, as long as we get a lead, as long as we come out strong and fast here and go up 3-0, then they're just going to rip their hearts out. We'll see. We'll see what the Nuggets have. We'll see how much gas they have left in the tank. I think if this is going to be a series, even if they split the next two, I don't think they're going to win three in a row. There's no way. How can they win three straight seven-game series down 3-1? I can't see that happening. The Nuggets have to get the next two games. And then you just take it from there. 
as far as the East is concerned, it's been a frustrating series for the Celtics, although they were able to bounce back in resounding fashion. And that's what you've seen a lot in this postseason. A lot of these double-digit leads just evaporate, it seems like in a matter of seconds. And the Heat were able to take advantage of it. They turned to their zone defensively, which seemed to screw the Celtics up, especially in Game 2. Jason Tatum trying to play hero ball in Game 1 with that dumb three-pointer. I don't know why he did that. And I can't stand that step-back three. Attack the basket. That was the best thing he could have done there. But instead, he wanted to be the hero to get the three-pointer. And it didn't happen. And we all know they lost in overtime thanks to Jimmy Butler. And Butler has been... I've been shocked by the way he's performed here with this team. Now, we know Butler is a very good player. To me, he's not a top 15 player in the league. But we know he probably has top five heart and guts. As you've seen. And he's on the right team. Because this team is made up of guys who lay it on the line. Night in and night out, whether you're Bam Adebayo and what he did there, especially in game one, the block on Jason Tatum, which was one of the great blocks you're ever going to see. We know about guys like Tyler Harrow, who's coming there and has made a contribution, as well as Duncan Robinson. Goran Dragic has been a thorn in the Celtic side here. He's kind of going back to his days in Phoenix and his first couple of years in Miami. And they've given the Celtics all they can handle and given them a lot of fits. To the point where they've come back from these double-digit leads. They've taken the 2-0 series lead. We know about what happened after the game with Marcus Smart. Cursing up a storm. Yelling and screaming. There were no altercations with other players. But that led to a late-night meeting between Coach Stevens, Kemba Walker, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Gordon Hayward. To have them all sit down and regroup and get this team in order. And you saw that there a couple of nights ago where they pretty much let start to finish and... Funny enough how Gordon Hayward, and I said this last week, for him to come back, which Gordon Hayward were you going to see? Were you going to see the Gordon Hayward that could put up 20 points, 8 rebounds, 7 assists? Or are you going to see the guy who kind of floats in and out of these games, but to the tune of 4 for 12, 15 points, not a lot of rebounds and assists? And when you look at his stat line on Saturday night, He didn't have a great game. What did he have? Six points. He did have about six or seven rebounds, four assists. But his presence alone, and not only that, but the Celtics were able to attack in the paint. And that's what you have to do against that zone defense. You got to attack. We understand that there may not be lanes or creases that a lot of players could penetrate there. But for whatever the reason, Hayward was a guy that was able to spread the floor, was able to get those points in the paint to the point where I believe it was, what, 60 to 34 points in the paint that they outscored the Heat there in Game 3. And that was the difference. And who knows, do the Celtics have life here? I think they do. And even the time off helps. And I was even surprised to see that from Game 3 to 4, Saturday to Wednesday, it made me think, I said, why are they taking all these days off? Well, of course, they had a two-game lead on the Laker Nugget series prior to game two last night. So now with no NBA tonight, you'll have game three of the Nuggets and Lakers tomorrow and then game four on Wednesday between the Heat and Celtics. And you just ride it out until both series close out and then you have the NBA Finals at some point, I would think at the middle or end of next week depending on how long these series go. But now the Celtics are cooking with gas. And I should see the Celtics continue to perform better. 
I wouldn't be surprised if they get the equalizer there Wednesday night. You kind of wonder if the time off maybe even hurts them a little bit because now since they got the momentum back to get the three-day break in that bubble, boredom, same routine, etc., to kind of spark that engine up for them to be off and running the way they did before Game 3. It's almost as if they'd rather play tonight, I'm sure. But hopefully Coach Stevens and company has them sharp, has them ready to go. You know Spolster and company are going to do the same there with the Heat. So Game 4, as pivotal as it's going to be, and we'll uh, get to see it there Wednesday night and see what direction the series goes after a Game 4. I said the Celtics are going to win this series. I said in seven it was going to be a long series, and I thought the Lakers were going to take care of the Nuggets. Or if even if it was the Clippers, I thought the Lakers it was going to be their year to go to the NBA Finals. But it would be interesting if you had a Heat-Laker final. Now, the cast of characters from the days of LeBron James when he played in Miami aren't there unless you're Udonis Haslam and obviously the coach Eric Spolstra. But you don't have any players from those championship teams or from that championship run that are going up against LeBron. Now two teams removed from those Heat teams. As we all know, he made that one stop in Cleveland before going to LA. I think that would be a fascinating NBA final. And I'm going to say this. If the Heat happen to win this series, let's say in six games, they better come with that same energy against the Lakers. Because despite the fact that they only lost two games in this postseason, and maybe they'll lose another one, or who knows, they may lose the series. But as solid and steady, and even I'll throw this out there, spectacular. Because they disposed of the Bucks the way they did, and Giannis got his back-to-back MVPs, for those who care about that. But he's sitting at home, and I'm sure he wished that he could take that MVP and throw it in the garbage in order for him to play against the Celtics right now. But the Heat better not run out of gas if they do play the Lakers in the final. Now watch it be a Denver-Miami NBA final. And just like I've said last week with Gary Bettman choking on the kale salad and the rice pilaf to know that Dallas and Tampa, nobody's going to watch that Stanley Cup final. It would pretty much be the same with Denver-Miami. But I do think a Miami-LA Laker final would be fascinating. I'm hoping that it's Lakers-Celtics. And I know a lot of people don't want to see that either. I get that they're tired of it. This is actually the 10-year anniversary of the last Lakers-Celtic NBA Final. We know how that ended in a Game 7 out in Staples Center. But first things first, we'll get to a Game 3 Nuggets-Lakers tomorrow and a Game 4 Celtics Heat on Wednesday night as the NBA playoffs continue to march on. Now quickly with the Stanley Cup Final. Uh, Listen, nobody's going to watch this or really follow this closely. Right now, you'd have to say the odds-on favorite to win the Conn Smythe Trophy, especially if you're the Dallas Stars, is the goalie. Because what Anton Kudobin has done here is pretty much carried the Stars team on the verge of winning a championship. Now, they still have to win three more games. Now, Tampa and their offensive firepower, you'd think they would show up at some point here over the course of these next three games. And even with Steven Stamkos, a guy who's been on the shelf going back to March as he had core surgery, has been practicing, may actually play, maybe not tonight for game two, but we may possibly see him here in this series. We all know this is for a Stanley Cup, so you know he's going to do his best to try to get out there, even if he's only going to play 10 minutes or whatever specialties, whether it's on a penalty kill or even on the power play. 
whatever he could contribute here this late in the Stanley Cup playoffs. But Dallas right now, they're a team that has been winning these games in various ways, whether it's close, whether it's not. You look at the way they beat the Golden Knights a week ago today, where they were down 2 nothing in the third period, and almost at the halfway point, Jamie Benn scores, and then a few minutes later, you had uh, Joel Caravanta score the goal to tie the game, and then in overtime, they get the winner from Denis Gurionov to propel them to their first Stanley Cup final in 20 years, and give it up for Dallas. They have pretty much run the Western Conference roughshod. They beat Colorado, understand they were pushed to a seventh game, but they persevered and were able to go on to a conference final where the Vegas Golden Knights, they were the favorite. And a lot of people thought that they were going to make it to the cup final, even going back to the start of the year. But they disposed of them in five games. And now they're just three games away from winning their second cup in Dallas. And this is their fifth time overall that they made it to the cup. And remember, they were the Minnesota North Stars prior to them migrating south to the Dallas-Fort Worth region. And we'll keep our eye on how that's going to go there. And quickly with Tampa and how they got here. Now, all you got to do is look at games five and six. They were pretty much the same blueprint from this standpoint. Both games were tied going into overtime where the Lightning had a four-minute advantage going into both overtimes to where game five, they weren't able to score. And then the Islanders, thanks to Jordan Eberle, were able to get the game-winning goal to push it to a game six. And then in game six, the same outcome. They had a two-man advantage going into the overtime. Now, the Islanders won the game five in double overtime, I might add. So it wasn't in the first overtime they won. So that's where the penalty was an end of regulation into the first overtime in game five. And in game six, you had the same deal, but in the first overtime. And I know Brock Nelson probably hasn't been able to sleep since then. And is going to think about this all offseason. Where he had a clean breakaway on Andre Vasilevsky, where the, he, if he would have scored there, he would have pushed the series to a game seven. He tried to go above the short side, where it was saved there by Vasilevsky, and it was just a matter of time before the Lightning were able to get the game-winning and series-clinching goal. And it was a tough series, hard fought. Islanders showed a lot of guts, a lot of toughness. You could only hope they could build from here. They need a sniper in the worst way. Because some of their guys, whether they just started to run out of gas, whether your name is Matthew Barzal or even Andrews Lee, we know Brock Nelson was a contributor throughout the whole playoffs. Same for Anthony Beauvillier. Matt Martin gave you a, a huge contribution. Same for Jean-Gabriel Pajot. Pajot was a guy that showed up during this postseason, had some big goals, but in the last couple of games was not able to muster up any offense. So to me, I just think that they're one Big-time goal scorer away from doing some big things here. And let's see what they do in this very short offseason to where Gary Bettman doesn't even know when the start of the 2021 season will begin or if it will start in the following year. Who knows? The NHL, I'm sure they're going to want to play close to 82 games. I know that if the season were to end, let's say you got game two tonight. And even if it goes game seven, that's going to bleed into next week. So now you're looking... Let's just say for argument's sake, September 30th. Not to say the season's going to end there because off the top of my head, I can't compute when it will end. But let's just say that it's September 30th. So now you're going to look at at least six weeks before you start hockey. I would think 
why don't you start at December 1st? Start at December 1st. Play, if you could play 70 games, that'd be great. Now, we know hockey usually starts the first week of October, so that's already two months into their season. So that's already 20 games off. So maybe if you do anywhere between 60 to 66 games, I'm sure they could settle for that. Or if they want to do close to the full schedule, maybe you'll start your postseason in late April as opposed to the second week of April. Or maybe you start May 1st, your postseason, and then you go your two months to where your Stanley Cup final may end up around July 4th, but at least you could start the following season on time, October, whatever it is, 3rd, 4th, 5th, or 6th, and then you'll go as normal. That's what I think the NHL should do, and you would think that Gary Bettman and company probably have that in place to where they're going to look at a regular season to start sometime, you would think, early December. All right, so let's turn our attention to baseball as we're now just seven days away from the end of the regular season. The sprint of this truncated baseball season is coming to a close and we'll get through all the postseason scenarios regarding the pennant races in the American League and National League. But before we get to that, I want to touch on this playoff scenario with the schedule and the good and bad of it. Now, we all know that there's going to be eight teams from each league so you're going to have that wild card round, which is best of three between the one and the eight, two and the seven, three and the six, four and the five. So the playoffs, which will open next Tuesday, will have those three days for all those teams. I believe the AL will start Tuesday and then the NL will start on Wednesday. So you're going to have eight games on Wednesday and Thursday because the AL will go Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday if the games go to the full three-game series. And then the NL will be Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So they'll have the weekend off, and then they'll start the division series that Monday, which I believe will be the AL Monday, and then the NL on Tuesday. All right, so that's the way it's going to be, and I love it that it's going to be in the bubble where the American League will be in LA and San Diego. And then for the National League, they will play their games in Arlington, Remember, both ballparks are still up. You have the brand new ballpark. I believe it's Globe Life Field, which was opened just earlier this summer. And then they have the old ballpark, which I believe is Globe Life Park. Those two stadiums will be the site for the National League wildcard games, as well as the DS and Championship Series, because they are going to have both of those teams and both of the leagues separate to play out the rest of the postseason there. And then as far as the World Series is concerned, they're going to play that in Arlington, the new Globe Life Field. So you're going to see that ballpark in all of its glitz and glamour once the World Series kicks off. So the good is that baseball is going to resort to the bubble. I like that. And for those who are probably wondering why aren't the American League teams playing in the American League ballpark, the same for the National League playing in the National League ballpark. Well, think about it. You have both LA and San Diego making it to the postseason. And those are, in essence, would be home games for them. I get that you could probably put LA in San Diego and vice versa. But then the argument will be, why would they do that? So that's why they put the National League in the American League ballparks and vice versa. I think that's my reasoning. That'd be my logic as to why they didn't do it the original way where the National League would be more comfortable playing in there. Ballparks, even for the rest of the National League. Those teams have played in Dodger Stadium and in Petco Park. 
They may not have played there this year, but in the past they have. And for the American League team, obviously a lot of those teams haven't even played in the new Texas Rangers ballpark. But be that as it may, that's the way it's set up. I just think that that's my explanation for it. So we have both of the bubbles set, which is smart. Considering how the NBA and NHL, it's worked to a T for both of those leagues. But here's the bad part that I don't like. We understand the opening round, the three games. If it goes to three games, fine. But now once you get to the division series and into the championship series. So let's say you're Garrett Cole and the New York Yankees. And two weeks from today in the division series, he pitches game one. Unlike the past where you had game one, game two, then on the road. Game three, game four on the road, travel day, and then game five. Because all these games are being played straight through, if Garrett Cole throws seven innings or eight innings, whatever it may be, and it's 115 pitches, does he come back on three days rest to pitch in a game five if it goes to a deciding fifth game? That's going to be your dilemma if you're Aaron Boone. Chances are you're going to have to do it. But as I said, with no days off, And for him to be on three days rest after, let's say, throwing 115 or 110 pitches, whatever it is, you're going to have to concern yourself about your starter moving forward, knowing that you're going to have a winner-take-all division series, and then you're not going to be able to pitch until game three of the next round, if you do happen to win that round in the game three of the championship series. And then on top of that, you're not going to be able to pitch him in a game seven because remember, all those games are going to run straight through. So if he pitches a game three, then you have game four, game five, game six, game seven, he's going to actually pitch that on three days rest as well. Now we understand it's to get to a World Series, but it's going to screw up your rotation. And if you don't have any rotation depth, which is also another issue, your bullpen is going to be taxed from here to kingdom come. Now as it is, a lot of the formula for these managers are to have your starters go five, five and a third, five, two thirds, or six would be the ceiling and then hand it over to your bullpen. And as we all know, these bullpens will be worn out this year, especially because of the wild card round. They may be worn out by game four of the division series. And if you're the Yankees, as stacked as you are on the bullpen, but we've seen that that formula has not worked over the years to the point where batters are going to know what's coming if you're Adam Adovino, if you're Zach Britton, if you're Aroldis Chapman. Because the more familiarity you see these pitchers, arm angles, velocity, etc., you're going to know what's coming. And not only that, but with the no days off, you're going to have to gauge whether or not it's important for you to have this pitcher relieve three days in a row, two days in a row, dare I say even four days, and you may be in a situation where, let's say it is a game five of the division series, but you already had to pitch Aroldis Chapman three days in a row. What does that mean for game five? So very, very tricky. And it's going to be interesting how these managers are going to deploy their bullpens. They're going to have to push their starting pitchers because the way the schedule sets up, it does not bode well for your starting rotation or your bullpen. That's something to keep in mind as we get into the postseason. Maybe not more so next week because it's just the three games. And again, it's two out of three. So if you win the first two, that's it. You can rest from then to the division series. But starting that division series and knowing that it's five straight games, if it goes that far, day off, and then you're going to play the next seven before the World Series. 
And I believe the World Series could be seven straight too. But I know the first two rounds after the wild card, the division and the championship series, it's five straight, day off, and seven straight. So that's something to keep in mind as we get that much closer to a postseason. Now, speaking of postseasons, one performer who's not going to be there and is a critical part of their rotation is the one, Justin Verlander, who announced on Instagram that he's going to need Tommy John surgery. Now, the Astros, who knows how long they're going to be for a postseason this year. Certainly remains to be seen, but at the same time, they're not going to have their big horse, and that is just a crushing blow and not really much of a surprise because after his first start, he had that forearm strain. It was believed to be the ulnar collateral ligament, but he decided to rest, try to see what it would look like after a month, even now two months, and here we are as of today, September 21st, and he's going to have to go into the knife. So that's just a crushing blow for the Houston Astros as they're trying to get back to a World Series without cheating. And also, we got to give it up for Albert Pujols, who's now alone in fifth place in Major League Baseball history with 661 and 662 home runs as he hit over the weekend. So the only players in the history of this sport are Alex Rodriguez, Babe Ruth, Hank Aaron, and Barry Bonds ahead of him all time for home runs. So congratulations to him. And as we look at the postseason right now, as we're a week away, we talked about it for the last couple of weeks. The American League is pretty much set with your team's from one through eight, it's just a matter of the seeding. What's going to be interesting is is that who's going to get the home field in the four or five series between Minnesota and the Yankees? Not that it's going to matter because again, they're going to be playing in LA or San Diego, no matter what stadium it uh, remains to be seen. But as we all know, the Twins have never beaten the Yankees in a big spot. They have never beaten them in the postseason. And would this be the year that they finally beat him considering they don't have to worry about having to play in Yankee Stadium with that crowd, etc.? Who knows? This could be the year. But you have the Indians that are looking to secure a spot. Toronto, Houston. Right now, Houston is actually your eighth seed. And that would be a very interesting first round if it were to be that between the Rays and the Astros. Only because, remember, they played in the first round last year and they pushed it to five games and the Astros did win in five. You could actually see a rematch with those two teams. And I think it would be pretty interesting because last year the Rays weren't able to get over the hump. They had an opportunity to beat the Astros at a time where, who knows, the Astros could have been a little fragile. This was before we knew everything about the scandal regarding their cheating and sign stealing and things of that nature. So something to keep an eye on. But the White Sox are right behind them just a half game back. The White Sox are looking to be heard from here. And you would think, with everything they've done so far in this short season, they're primed and ready for a long run. Who knows? They're still young. They don't know the rigors or have the experience of being in a postseason. Obviously, we'll talk about that more next week. But when the AL and how that's shaping up, you just figure whether Cleveland, Toronto, and Houston, who are, are separated by two games, and Toronto and Houston are actually tied for the last spot in the American League, we'll see how... Everything aligns come next week between these top eight teams because you can forget about Seattle, Baltimore, and obviously the Angels. All those teams are done for the year. But the American League, you already have your eight teams. It's just a matter of where they're seated. And as far as the National League is concerned, you have the Dodgers and Padres. The Dodgers won two out of three against the Padres last week to pretty much secure the NL West for the eighth straight time. But the Padres are right behind them as far as the standings are concerned. Then you have the Cubs, the Braves, the Marlins, uh, 
St. Louis, Philadelphia, and Cincinnati right now has the last spot in the National League. The Brewers are also tied and the San Francisco Giants. But the thing is that the Reds have more wins. They played more games. And although there are no tiebreakers, as weird as that may sound, but the Reds currently are in the eighth spot in the National League. We'll see what happens if the Brewers or the Giants happen to leapfrog one another to get to that eighth spot. You also have to look at the Phillies. The Phillies are 27 and 26. They're just a half game ahead of the Reds. And they may be without Bryce Harper for the course of the week because he suffered a lower back strain. Who knows how severe that is. They actually have to play four games in Washington this coming week before going to Tampa to close out their season. So a playoff spot is definitely not a shoe in for Joe Girardi and the Phillies. The Reds, Brewers, Giants, even the Mets, if you want to even throw them in there, they're two and a half games back with seven to play. Chances are the Mets aren't going to make it to the postseason. And I'm going to get to them in a minute. If you want to throw these teams in a hat or if you want to have their team's logos on a baseball You could juggle these all up in the air and let's see which one falls into the postseason if you're Miami, St. Louis, Philadelphia, Cincinnati, Milwaukee, San Francisco. I'm going to leave the Mets out because all those teams that I mentioned are all separated by two and a half games. And either one of those, one, two, three, four, either one of those seven teams can make the postseason. So you have some intrigue, you have some drama, in the National League, which you don't have in the American League. And I think the team that has the best shot of making it. Now, the Marlins, they have a tough week this week. They play four in Atlanta and four in the Bronx against the Yankees. So if they have a winning week, even if they're four and three, you would think they'll make the postseason, and that would be an achievement, even if it is 60 games for the Marlins to make it. The Cardinals, and remember, they lost a lot of time earlier this year due to coronavirus, but they have a five-game series against the Brewers this weekend. So either one of those two teams are going to be knocked off when they play each other this weekend. So you have that to look forward to if you're a Brewer fan. The Phillies, I mentioned their week with the Rays at the weekend and the Nationals before that. And you know the Nationals want to do whatever it takes to knock the Phillies out of the postseason. And the Reds, as far as their schedule and what it looks like, they have three against Milwaukee starting tonight, and they have three in Minnesota. So a little tough sledding for them. A lot of intrigue. Now, San Francisco, they're going to play the NL West teams, or they actually could play even somebody in the AL West as well. Let me look at their schedule real quick. But nevertheless, you have a lot of intriguing storylines heading into this final week, especially in the National League when it comes to the pennant race. And we'll watch it all unfold and talk about it next week as we'll have our MLB playoff preview. And the Giants, they have four against Colorado and four against San Diego at home. Although one of those games is a makeup game with San Diego where the Giants will be a road team in their building. So they have eight games, Colorado, who this season has fallen apart, and San Diego, I'm sure they're going to try to fine-tune, maybe even rest some players. So maybe the Giants have a very good shot of making the postseason considering that the Brewers, Cubs... Cardinals, they all play one another over the course of this week. And maybe one of those teams will fall by the wayside and the Giants will be able to propel themselves into the postseason. And now, let's get into the official purchase of the New York Mets by one Steve Cohen. As expected, I'm ecstatic. I'm happy. Am I happy more so in that the Wilpons are gone and that Steve Cohen is in? Yeah, you could say that. But even with Steve Cohen, as him being a lifelong Mets fan... 
a guy who's loved this team forever. We all know hedge fund guy has had some issues there with the securities and exchange commissions with certain deals and insider trading and having to pay enormous fees and court battles and things of that nature. Hopefully that doesn't translate into his baseball life. But the two things that I have to look at with Cohen right off the bat, and he's going to get approved by the owners. I mean, please, you're not going to come this far for the owners to be like, nah, no good. And to think he's the richest owner in baseball, which that's, to wrap your head around that as a Met fan, it almost doesn't seem right and doesn't make sense because everything that the Mets done has been such a half-assed job that to have a guy that has deeper pockets than anybody in baseball, it's, again, I still can't even believe it. But here are the two things that you have to look at here if you're a Met fan before you start going crazy and think that he's going to spend like a drunken sailor or whatever. But here's what you need to know. One, is he going to look at this organization as his new shiny toy? Is he going to show it off to all his buddies? Is it going to be a contest with all of his other cronies on Wall Street or the other billionaires that he happens to fraternize upon or that he wants to show off and be the guy that, yeah, this is my team. I've grown up loving this team and now I'm just going to do whatever it takes but be at the same point irresponsible in doing so? That I do not want. I don't want a Daniel Snyder to be part of my Met organization because he's only going to make the fan base hate him more. So that's something you got to think about. Is he going to come in here with bravado? Is he going to come in looking at this as his bright, new, shiny, custom-made Lamborghini? That sadly, he's going to drive it off the road and over a cliff? Or is he going to look at it and say, I'm bringing the right baseball people in? Yes, from time to time, you will hear from me, but I'm going to steer clear from all or any distractions that I may be towards this franchise and this organization. I'm going to employ the right people, the right manager, the right players. I'm going to sign the checks on the dotted line. And on top of that, not spend to the point where the team is hamstrung by just outrageous contracts that you're going to take years to rebuild this team somewhere down the road. That's what you have to look at here. Because as much as he could be the guy coming in on the white horse to save this franchise, you also have to think about it. Is he going to do it responsibly or irresponsibly? That's what I'm going to look at here. Just because he has $10 million or whatever he's worth doesn't mean that he's going to go out and sign some 32-year-old right fielder to a 10-year contract at $300 million where you're going to just say, wait a minute, what are we doing here? That you're going to have a Robinson Cano 2.0. Mind you, we didn't get him until last year and we got the back end of his deal, so we're not paying $300 million as opposed to $100 million, but you get my point. So that's what we have to see here, how Cohen's going to behave once we had that press conference, once he's announced as the official owner of the New York Mets, what is his game plan? The fan base needs to know that. Because as much as we could say, yeah, he could flash his bucks and show off his shiny new toy, which I hope that's not the case, but he could bring in all the top free agents to this team, but they have to be the right fit. I don't want an all-star team. I don't want to have guys that you're going to plug in and think that he's going to be 35 and 100 automatically when he comes to a new atmosphere, a new environment that he's never performed from. I don't want a guy that played in St. Louis and now he's got to come to New York and then that's it. He's just going to wilt under the big lights and the pressure of playing in Queens. I don't want to see that. 
So that's what we got to look at here, Met fans. So before we could jump for joy, rejoice, sing hallelujah to the heavens, and rightfully so. But we have to be cautiously optimistic because we need to know not only what's in this owner's heart, but what's also in his mind. Because if he comes in here and he's going to start with his bluster, if he's going to be more Rex Ryan, I'll just use him for instance, or even try to be like George Steinbrenner, to me, that's not going to work. I don't want to hear that. I'd rather him come up to the podium and say, it's an honor, it's a privilege, I'm thankful, I'm blessed, it was a long process, but I love this team, I want to do whatever it takes for this team to win. I don't want him to sound like a politician. I want him to sound like a true businessman who's coming in here with a plan. Not coming in here just to throw some words and money around and think that the franchise is going to be up and running thanks to his empty promises and big bucks. That's not going to cut it in my book. So we shall see, people. And once that time comes, we'll assess it. When it's official as far as his introductory press conference. But I just want to give a heed to the Met fan out there. Yes, we could be ecstatic. We could be happy. But let's tread with a little caution. Just a little. All right, two other quick things before we say goodbye. College football, you have the Big Ten returning October 24th, which is a big deal. That's also going to expand the playoff, you would think, for college football. Because right now you just had the ACC and the SEC in the mix. We know about the Big 12. They've also been playing games. Now the Pac-12, on the other hand, they may make a decision by tomorrow as to when their season will start. And it looks like it's going to be Halloween at this moment. And that's going to be huge too because if there's going to be any type of semblance of a playoff when you have the Power 5 conferences involved, you want to get the Pac-12 in there. And we understand they have a situation there in the Pacific Northwest and out West with the fires, which seems to be calming down just a little bit. And you would think between now and Halloween is enough time for them to get their schedule and their season up and running. But kudos to both of those conferences. I th- I thought they did the right things from the start by canceling. I understand that was to the chagrin of a lot of other people, including the president of this country, to think that why do you want to shut down football, etc. With the way COVID was spreading, especially in baseball, you can't look at basketball and hockey right now because they were in bubbles, but the way baseball and how their season started with the Marlins after the first weekend contracting the virus and then the Cardinals for two and a half weeks and then we didn't know what was going to happen with the NFL, but they feel as if with... Baseball, obviously in full swing, and the NFL now just getting their season started. College football and what they've experienced here in these first couple of weeks, they feel the Big Ten and the Pac-12 look like they're going to be on deck to start their seasons, and good for them. Now we just have to see how it's all going to play out, shape out as far as the college football playoff, but that's something for down the road because, again, I know a lot of people probably wondering, Jay Reels, when are you going to talk college football? Well, let's get some exciting games going and then we could really jump into it full bore. Because right now, with all the other sports that are going on, look, I've waited an hour and some odd minutes just to get to this point and there hasn't been a sexy college football game or a big upset that has happened here over the course of these first two or three weeks. So until we get to that where we have a little bit of juice, then I'll be able to dive in without an issue. 
But that obviously needed to be put out front and center as far as college football is concerned because those are two big conferences as we know. And now that they're going to get their season started in the very near future, that is big news for not only just the universities themselves, but for the sport as a whole. And we'll be sure to monitor it here in the weeks and months to come. And as far as the golf yesterday, we have a winner and a one Bryson DeChambeau winning the U.S. Open, the second leg. Remember, there's not going to be a British here and we have the Masters in November. So now that we have the PGA in the books and now U.S. Open, which was right up the road here in Mamaroneck, New York at Wingfoot, a very historic and venerable golf course. This was a course that, and I didn't watch every second of every player, and yesterday I was in and out of it, but this was a course, let's face it, that it brought the players to its knees. There wasn't going to be a Dustin Johnson shooting 30 under for the tournament, as you saw, where you had the last two players standing go under for the tournament, or at least under for yesterday, in a one DeChambeau and Matthew Wolf, the 21-year-old who has made his U.S. Open debut going into the final day of the tournament, two strokes in the lead, looking to do something that was never happened. Or I believe in the last 80 years where he had somebody made a debut to win the U.S. Open. But here at this golf course, where Tiger didn't make the cut, where Phil Mickelson didn't make the cut, where a lot of the big guys you didn't hear, the Ricky Fowlers, the Dustin Johnsons, go down the list. And here it was between Matthew Wolf and Bryson DeChambeau. And pretty much at the start of the tournament, when you got midway through those holes after the first, I guess, four or five holes where DeChambeau took over, and then in the back nine just pretty much dusted Matthew Wolf. And one of the things about DeChambeau before coming into this tournament, he had won one of the smaller tournaments. I can't remember. I don't know if it was the Travelers or the uh, one tournament that took place there. I believe in the Midwest. I can't recall off the top of my head, but he had won a tournament there within the last month to six weeks where he's a guy that his game is based on power. He's a guy that during this pandemic actually gained 40 pounds of muscle and mass, whether it's the body, the nutrition, the weightlifting, couple that with the equipment that he's using, He's a guy that has that gripping and ripping mentality that there is no hole, whether it's a par 5, 530 yards, it's never too big. He's a guy that he tries to make it to the green in one stroke. And that's turned off, let's call it as it is, it's turned off a lot of players on the tour. Because when you look at what Rory McIlroy said yesterday, he said that, and this is his quote, It's a complete opposite of what a U.S. Open champion does. He found a way to do it, but he doesn't know if it's good or bad for the game. Because when you have a guy that's just going to pound the ball all over the place, and he's going to make fairways, and he's going to say the heck with using this club, I'm going to use a different club, and I'm just going to try to, again, have that mentality of just take it, stroke it as hard as you can, and wherever it lands, it lands. You know, it's almost as if he's not a tactician. He just wants to bully the course. And in turn, he's also not bullying the players, but he's taking such a stranglehold of the golf course that it's kind of leaving the other players behind to say, man, we can't even catch up to this guy. So I don't know if that's more of a psychological thing on DeChambeau's part. I'm sure he looks at it as like, well, hey, 
This is how. This is what I've done in the off season. This is what I've done to prepare myself. And if you can't catch up, then I don't know what to tell you. Even Harris English, who's a guy I never heard of, who had a very good tournament there over the weekend, he said that it's a game that we never really seen before. And mind you, we've seen guys pound the ball 300, 400 some odd yards off the tee. Maybe 400 is a little too strong, but you get what I'm saying. But DeChambeau, he wants to go even further than that. And because his game is so unconventional and it's not the type of golf that anyone has seen in quite some time, it turned the players off, I think. Because just based on some of these reactions, I mean, even McElroy, you know, for him to come out and say it's a complete opposite of what a U.S. Open champion does. Is that an insult or is that a compliment? To me, that sounds more like an insult. And DeChambeau, he's come on the scene here since the break, since golf has come back into the mix here in June. Now he's got his first major under his belt. You wonder what does this mean as we get to November for the Masters? And then obviously into next year, is he a guy that a lot of people are going to look at with a side eye and say, is this guy artificially enhanced? Uh, What is happening here? So DeChambeau, listen, he won the tournament. He's been playing well this year. I get that a lot of people may not like his golf. Maybe the older guy or the older crowd. Maybe the younger fans looking at it is like, yeah, he's just making this golf courses look small or the, whatever it is. I don't know. Listen, if that as long as he's not cheating, 40 pounds over the course of four or five months, who knows? And I'm not, I'm not saying that he's doing stuff that he shouldn't be doing or not. I'm not making that accusation at all. But I can see why other golfers on the tour are maybe questioning whether or not that this type of game is suitable for today and definitely not for the long run because I'm sure a lot of the players that are out there aren't in favor for what DeChambeau is doing here. And listen, that's something that they have to deal with. That's something that they're going to have to either approach DeChambeau. I don't think they're going to do that. I'm sure there's going to be a certain amount of decorum, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's going to be one guy that's going to come out and challenge DeChambeau to the point where, yeah, what's really going on with this guy? So, at least it makes it for fascinating golf from the standpoint of a storyline, of a headline, to have a guy win a major and then you still have the biggest major of all. Granted, it's going to be in November and not in April where it should have been, but it gives golf a little juice here with this guy. You just got to wait and see what's going to happen here with these smaller tournaments between now and November and especially once you get to the Masters because I'm sure that's going to be all the talk, especially if DeChambeau is starting to win these tournaments between now and six weeks from now. Because I believe the Masters is the first weekend of November. So we'll definitely keep an eye on that as we continue to move along. All right, now let me get to my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week is former Detroit Tiger manager Ron Gardenhire. He actually retired on Saturday, citing health issues. He wants to refocus his health. He feels as if this season, although it's 60 games, he even said that it felt like it's a 175-game season. So he wants to focus on his health, and rightfully so. If he feels like he's being burnt out, if it's too much, he's 62 years of age. He's still relatively young, but I'm sure baseball can make you age quite faster than it uh, normally would from a day-in, day-out basis. So kudos to him for recognizing that, that it didn't get any worse or didn't have to deal with any Serious health issues along the way. Just look at Terry Francona. He still hasn't come back to the dugout with what he's dealing with. And I believe that's, he has a gastrointestinal issue. So 
Ron Gardenhire, you are my hero of the week. And my zero of the week, I believe this is for the second time, so this is unprecedented waters here. Sorry, Novak Djokovic, you are my zero of the week because here he was at the Italian Open where on Saturday he received a warning for breaking a racket on the court itself and then yesterday received an obscenity warning in a semifinal win in the Italian Open. I believe it's in Rome. The reason why I bring it up is because we know two weeks ago we had that incident at the U.S. Open where he struck a tennis ball out of frustration and he hit the line judge in the throat. Now, whether or not he should have been disqualified, that's an argument for another day, even though I did say that you shouldn't have done that. And right, even if it missed by a foot and hit the wall, he probably wouldn't have gotten kicked out of the tournament, but still... That was enough damage that God forbid that if he, that person was hurt or really badly injured, what the outcome that could have been for that line judge. But he even admitted after the match that that's the way he lets out his frustration. He knows he has to do a better job. But in light of what happened two weeks ago, slamming a racket there on Saturday, obscenity warning there yesterday. And this is in front of fans, mind you. Unlike the US Open, no fans. This is in front of fans. And he knows that for the younger tennis fan... That's not a good optic, et cetera, et cetera. But Novak Djokovic, when are you going to learn, my guy? You are my zero of the week. So that'll do it, people. Episode 156, just about in the books. But as I usually do to close out our program with just a little housekeeping, for those listening for the very first time, if you like what you've heard, if I was able to entertain and inform you with everything that's happening in the world of sports, if you haven't subscribed, rated, or reviewed this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, wherever you get your podcast, please, I would ask you to do so. All that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, and then in turn, generate interest for those who aren't familiar with the J Reels podcast to try to get that guest in, whether it's the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, the writer, blogger, studio host, whomever it may be. I'm an independent operation, people, so I host, produce, write, and edit this podcast. Any contribution that you could do to subscribe, rate, and review, I would greatly appreciate it. And for those who haven't done so and been listening to me for quite some time, shame on you. No. Well, please, if you haven't done so, get a chance to do that. Again, I would greatly appreciate it. Also, if you want to send me a question, comment, criticism, or praise, you could do so and follow me at any of my social media accounts, whether it's J Reels or the J Reels podcast on Instagram, J Reels one just a number on Twitter, the J Reels podcast on Facebook or the old fashioned way, the J Reels podcast at gmail.com. If you want to send me an email or a DM at any of those aforementioned social media accounts, I would sincerely greatly appreciate it. I'll be able to follow up with you. Just send them my way and I'll be sure to reply ASAP. Also, if you want to contribute to the podcast as far as production, behind the scenes stuff, whether it's the website, equipment, Anything that has to do with this podcast, you could do so on my Patreon account, which is P is in Peter, A T is in Tom, R E O N is in Nancy dot com slash the J Reels Podcast. Any contribution that you could do, I would sincerely be appreciative of because as you know, or maybe you do not know if this is your first time listening, with 156 episodes in the book, I plan to do 156,000 more as long as the good Lord has me on this planet. Because all I love to talk about, people, is sports with everything that's happening on the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the world of the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. 
from the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.